0: Hello, I'm Neil Anderson, and welcome to Warwick Podcasts. On a crime where Asian women are subjected to violence and even murder because they want to marry against their family's wishes are becoming even more common in this country. I'm joined by Professor Shirin Ray from the Department of Politics and International Studies to talk about crimes of honour in India and Pakistan. She's written a paper as part of a group which looks at how the law is used to support crimes of honour in those countries. Uh, Shirin, perhaps we can first of all start about uh, describing what honour crimes are and what uh, honour is really in this sort sort of context perhaps.
1: Well, the first thing to say about honor crimes, Neil, would be to say that there's nothing honorable about this crime and that it is really the focus on crime that we have to keep firmly in our minds. Um, The second thing to say, I think, is that it is a term which is relatively recent in uh, in the public imagination, I would think. Um, very uh, much a, a case of the 1990s and perhaps, and this is not something that has been researched just now, um, a term that ha- that was first used to indicate a particular form of violence within the diasporic South Asian community in the West uh, there are different names for such crimes um, against, against women as well as men uh, in that are operative in India and Pakistan, Um, but really in the English medium now, honor crimes is, as you have pointed out, um, referred to in cases where men and women choose to transgress either religious or caste boundaries um, in terms of their love for each other or even marriage.
0: And you talk about very specific kind of examples and types and scenarios really uh, uh, within the paper uh, uh, and you describe it as criminalising marriage choice uh, and the paper describes a uh, uh, zina crime. That, uh, uh, just explain a little bit about, about that and that, uh, that range of crime that you describe in the paper.
1: Well, Pakistan and India, as you know, have very different legal systems. So, to talk about South Asia um, is difficult. And if we look at Bangladesh as well as a, a Islamic country, uh, there you have got a completely different set of of issues. So, first thing, the first message is that there are differences within South Asia that need to be taken seriously. The second question is that there is an intersection between parallel sovereignties um, that we call in the paper, or really what we could also describe in terms of um, governance of either polities, which are state institutions, um, and governance of communities, which are much more parallel judicial or governance uh, bodies, such as village councils. In India, they are called caste panchayats. In Pakistan, they are called jirgas. Um, so there are different legal systems and there are different institutional systems operating in these two countries. Um, in India, there is no legal barrier to marriage of choice. The, fund, the Constitution p- provides every every citizen of the country with the choice of marriage. And yet, of course, we find that when transgression of uh, caste and religious boundaries takes place, then both state institutions as well as these parallel bodies um, become complicit at times and only at times uh, in punishing those Transgressions very severely, and of course, the most extreme form could be in the way in which they regard these so-called honor crimes. In Pakistan, um, things are slightly different because under the under President Zia ul um, Haq, um, the Hudud Ordinance was was uh, passed, which made the crime of zina. Um, uh, really uh, part of personal law, and under the crime of of Zina, adultery um, can be manifested or or talked about in different forms and is punishable uh, for both the woman and the man and the 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 problem with Zina is that really the evidence of rape or forced marriage or in terms of either um, verbal Uh, Evidence or physical evidence, such as pregnancy, can actually lead to the woman being cast out as um, a person committed uh, who has committed adultery. And so, instead of being the victim, she then becomes evidence against herself, or embodied evidence against herself. Um, And I think that those are the differences that we need to keep in mind when we look at the the way in which the legal systems in the two countries approaches this issue.
0: I mean, it's how uh, adultery is then classed as a crime, uh, and and in its most kind of extreme form, as you describe in the paper, that uh, this admission of, of rape then is an admission of adultery, and therefore uh, a crime sort of perpetrated by by the woman, the the victim. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, absolutely. But I think what is fascinating and what came through our research was that the legal system in Pakistan obviously has to deal with um, a whole history of colonial law, as well as a whole history of Islamic law. And the two together uh, can create tensions within the legal system itself, can create dangers for both men and women um, who transgress certain boundaries. And are definitely detrimental to the rights of women in the way that you've just said, which is that rape becomes evidence of of adultery rather than becoming an evidence of a crime. Um, And and I think that that is where um, the issue of of honour and the way it plays out within, uh, not only within communities, but actually within the legal system, becomes really problematic. On the other hand, what we also find, again, in Pakistan, as well as in India, that the legal system does provide a bulwark against these kind of interpretations of honour. So whether it is in the context in India, for example, we have, we have noted cases in our, in our paper of women going and filing cases for restitution of conjugal rights. Uh, which has got a very problematic gendered history in right through the colonial period because very often it was the men who used to go and ask for the restitution of conjugal rights. But women are doing that on, on advice of their lawyers in order to make sure that they are restored to the person they want to live with, which is the man who is being taken away from them by their parents, sort of, again, filing a case in the courts of kidnapping. So you've got two legal um, arrangements, both being used by both the victim as well as the perpetrators, um, and the courts having to decide as to what uh, what they can do and how they can approach this.
0: And you just to pursue that point a little bit, you, you do sort of outline in the paper, as you've been highlighting there, uh, how the laws of rape abduction and, and kidnap are, are used to uh, either uh, bring couples apart or to prevent uh, uh, couples from separating and just I- explain h- how that works a little bit. Then
1: It is very interesting um, that the way in which things like uh, or, or laws like the habeas corpus laws against kidnapping um, conjugal rights are used and also, actually, just fundamental right of, of individuals in the context of India, anyways, to to make a marriage of choice, um, are used frequently, but actually, quite in a quite a complicated way by those who are, um, are involved in this. Um, for example, there has, there have been cases where women have been charged with their own kidnapping. Now, how do you do that um, by by claiming that the woman is uh, not an adult, that the woman is not of a sound mind or the woman was unduly influenced by the man. And therefore, though she might have consented to leave her home um, with the with her boyfriend or, or with her lover, um, she is not seen as um, uh, responsible for that um, decision. And therefore, she is complicit in her own kidnapping. Now, you might think that this is really odd. But actually, if we go back all the way, we find that this was used very often during the colonial period as well. So that is why we have called the article Legacies of Common Law, because that it allows us to trace back these legal arrangements, which are now being used in, in, in these interesting ways.
0: And you do out, uh, outline how uh, a father would uh, file charges against his daughter uh, of uh, kidnapping, claiming that uh, uh, she was under the, the age of consent for a sexual relationship, uh, and, th- and therefore you know she is charged by having a, a relationship with a man. That, that that's an outline of how it works.
1: Um, yes, it, it it does, and and uh, there are different different sort of uh, things that can be uh, can can come to bear uh, to play in 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 this regard. Uh, as I've said, it's partly to do with the fact of her responsibility in terms of her age. Partly it is to do with her sanity. Is is she sort of you know uh, of of mental. Uh, soundness. Um, it is also to do with gendered regimes of property. So very often, the way in which we find this operating is the way the police works. Um, the first thing that happens, of course, in any legal system if, if, in terms of charging someone is that you have to go and get a police, uh, get the police to to file a report. in In the context of both India and Pakistan, that's called the first information report. Now, if it is the the girl who goes, who wants to go with her lover, you know, or the boy who wants to go with his partner. Um, they go and say to the police, "Look, we are in danger of 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 uh, our families trying to stop us. Uh, please charge, uh, file a report saying that we are." adults, and this is our choice, and we want to carry on with this, the police very often on the ground, especially in the rural areas, um, would find that very difficult. They would probably say, oh, look, you know, you should sort this out within the family, exactly like what we hear in in England say about the domestic. So police not wanting to get involved. Um, Very often, of course, these cases are also not only about caste and religion, but are also about class. So if the girl is from upper class families, then the police is also quite sort of wary of taking on these very powerful economic and social interests within uh, the local community. So they might n- not only might this not register the complaint, but they might actually try and and uh, incarcerate the girl long enough for the family to come and. Take her back to be sort of, you know, for for restitution to take place, not of conjugal rights in this context, but of course of property rights over the girl. Of, of the family. So there are really interesting uh ways in which law plays out on the ground and the legal terminology and language uh, is used um on from both sides. But of course we have to remember that these are deeply gendered systems and therefore the vulnerability of those who are transgressing is far far greater than the vulnerability of the families.
0: Just going back one one step that uh and uh, about the 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 woman or girl that's been sort of complicit in her own kidnap, as it were, and uh, you outline in the paper that uh, if she doesn't support the sort of family's point of view, that she can be classed as insane, that, that, and that's how the kind of sanity aspect comes into it.
1: Well, it's about undue influence, isn't it? That that she is uh, under age. Um, she has been forced or cajoled or or seduced um, because, and again, that's where the the gendered norms become so important, because under all quote-unquote normal circumstances, she would not be going against her parents' wishes. It is something which then allows you to build a case of um, not necessarily always insanity, that doesn't always happen, but definitely of undue pressure being put on the girl. So, for example, in, in the case, or the Humera case that we, we um, refer to in the paper um, the parents um, complicit um, with, the, with the complicity of, of the police do get the girl back and then they are able to use technologies such as a videoing of a completely false marriage to say, look, you know, she was unduly influenced look how happy she is now getting married to the boy that the family chose for them in that case, the the courts did not accept that evidence as, uh, and that does indicate also uh, how courts are playing both role of which consolidates those gendered regimes of power, but also challenges those. In that Homero case, it did not um, uh, accept that evidence of the of the parental family uh, authority, um, and they they. Said that the that uh, the first marriage that Humera wanted um, stayed, and the case the the argument that the court put forward were many. One was within the uh, Pakistani legal system, but secondly, they also emphasised that Pakistan is also signatory to CEDAW, the Convention for the Elimination of Discrimination, all forms of discrimination against women, and as such. Then, as a, uh, a signatory to an international convention, Pakistan must make sure that it's that the women, its women citizens, are not denied their rights. So, very complex issues of both the lo- at the local level, but actually also at the global level, uh, with the state, with the national state in the middle, um, these negotiations take place around. Uh, the governing of sexuality of men and women in these contexts.
0: And what is really at the nub of of the issue is that it's a local village law uh, which kind of opposes the state law, which Mm. would kind of uh, outlaw this sort of activity.
1: I think it's not that we can call these um, local community norms laws because they're not. And yet sometimes... In the everyday lived lives of people, they can have far greater purchase than laws of the state. And in a context where um, these social norms, especially around the context of marriage, are seen to be more important uh, for the families, they play out very differently as well. So, in the context of um, that, is not to say that these communities are only oppressive or only sort of try, you know uh, policing of these boundaries. They can also create new kind of solidarities. There might be uh, the sense in which the the caste um, village councils might provide people with welfare provision if if they if they need so. But it will all be confined within the hierarchical uh, boundaries of the caste. So there are some new kind of or old kind of solidarities which also operate. But I think the problem really is that most people live their lives in their communities. And in the context of South Asia, those communities are reproduced through this form of marriage, which is called arranged marriages, which needs to be distinguished from what we would call forced marriage and that reproduction of community is extremely important in the context where very often communities feel under threat by all sorts of um things such as for example liberalization of the indian economy that is sucking up a huge amount of male as well as young female labor into the cities where communities then don't have as much uh control over their young members so we talked or we we quote um, community leaders saying, well, we are losing the boys because of globalization of Indian economy. We can't afford to lose our girls. Otherwise, how will we reproduce our, our community culture and norms? So there are quite conscious and quite worried about um, the way in which liberalization uh, and globalization and India's participation in globalization is playing out within their community norms uh, or as a challenge to the community norms. And that kind of threatens um, these people. Um, the other question is that, of course, there are, they, these are these parallel sovereignties that we talk about, the sovereignty of the state and actually the sovereignty of the community. And very often they, they are quite supportive of each other because maybe the personnel are the same. You might be a police official and, and you might be also a really high ranking or, or a high status member of the community. Now, very often you talk to police officers and they say, well, you know, the caste politics, really the state should not interfere in it. So they kind of end up supporting each other. But as I've illustrated also, that's very often that courts are taking a stand increasingly against these um caste based intolerant um, sort of uh, crimes uh, of violence that are taking place.
0: And just to sort of highlight that, that um, we you talked about it a little bit about the the Humera case. So just to sort of give us a sort of few details of what that involved, and uh, uh, and that was one of the important uh, uh, landmark appeal judgments that you uh, highlight in the paper.
1: Yes, Humeira is um, is about a thirty year old woman who marries a man called Mahmud but against the wishes of her parents, um, and this is the point I was trying to make as well. Uh, her father is a sitting member of the provincial legislature at that time, so he is very um, he's socially upper class and. Uh, uh, and also he's a member of the political um, institution, which is which is really important. Um, Humera and Mahmood Bad get married. The father knows this, but he totally refuses um, to accept that, which means that they have to flee their home in order to be arrested under. And this is where the differences are between India and Pakistan under the case being filed um, by, the, by the father under Zina under the Hudud, um, ordinance in Pakistan, which would mean that, you know, this would be deemed to be adultery because her parents had already arranged her marriage to somebody else who she didn't want to marry. They fly to Karachi and they take refuge in, uh, a ref- uh a refuge there, um, And then her brother ends up filing a first information report to the effect that his sister had left home after a row with the mother and that she should be restored to the family. The police, instead of saying that now she's a married woman, it is really for her to to, uh, go back or not, um, they say, okay, you know, we will hold her in the police station. Totally not legal. Um, And then they... They do restore her, quote unquote, to her her family because of the brother's charge. And then, as I said earlier, a, different marriage is uh, a spectacle of a different marriage. Really, is cast with a video being taken of of this marriage, and to to prove that she is now married to this this person of the family's choice, Humera's distention and, and and wrongful confinement, of course, is challenged um, by and by the um, legal aid center in lahore uh, pioneered by by asma jahangir who is very well known human rights lawyer in in pakistan um and that is where then the court gives this landmark decision which rejects the family's um, charge and allows Humaira and Muhammad. So it's actually quite a nice story because even though we see um, the way in which these um, hierarchies and, and, and power of the community plays out in, in the lives of, of individual people who want to transgress boundaries, um, it also... Underlines the the role that uh, law is playing to stop that happening to some extent.
0: And is that an, an increasing picture then that uh, that uh, that uh, traditional legal structure is being overturned uh, on appeal and use of the the state system?
1: It is um, a, an interesting question that, and I don't know whether. Um, we have the figures yet. But what is definitely the case is that the higher up you are in the uh, legal system, uh, we find more cases of, say, the high courts and the supreme courts overturning these while the lower courts seem to be still very much embedded in the social structures and they find it more difficult. It's not that it's not happening at all, but you find that, that lower courts find it more difficult to take a stand against these kind of, of crimes or these kind of social pressures, uh, while the higher courts, the upper courts, are are uh, perhaps uh, freer to do so, and are able to exercise their authority in a different way. But as I said, lots more needs to be done in terms of research before we can make a pattern out of this.
0: I'll ask about this, the overview, though. That uh, I mean, is this a, a an old habit that that is dying out? Then
1: I don't really know. I think it is very difficult to get statistical information about these kind of issues. As always, is it that by the naming of things uh, we also create them? So, by naming of a crime called honor crimes, now we are able to say, "Oh my goodness, there are so many things, so many more uh, on, of these crimes happening." Again, we don't know. Um, what we do know, of course, is that it is being talked about much more. The state is being challenged to address this issue much more. Um, And I think in part that is because of also the links that are are forming between uh, women's rights groups in South Asia as well as diasporic South Asian groups in other parts of the world. So we've had in Britain, as you know, uh, not only cases within the Indian and the Pakistani communities but also the Kurdish community recently so it's not simply something that is confined to south asia but it is definitely the case that diasporic communities and the struggles within diasporic communities are also raising the profile of of this particular crime this is something that needs to be recognized that women's groups in both india pakistan as well as in this country in the uk have taken this up in a big way and are taking this up and and are using multiple strategies so they are using legal strategies. They are using strategies such as give you know, setting up of refuge, uh, refuges, so that women can actually go, and men, young men who are threatened, can also go and and have some safe space because the police very often doesn't provide that safe space to them. Um, so there are different forms, and obviously they are also using the traditional um, strategies of lobbying the state, lobbying the government, um, having uh, demonstrations against against these. So. I hope, of course, that it will um, all these things together will make a difference and bring this this down.
0: And what sort of implications does that have for tackling honour crime in this country? Then, do you think?
1: Well, I, as you you might know that that the government is thinking of bringing a, about a law against forced marriages um, that is under consultation and there's very widespread consultation about it in. This context it is even more complicated because there are issues around racism, there are issues around um, Islamophobia, there are issues around also the silences within communities who find themselves unable to speak out against their own oppression sometimes or violence that they witness within their own communities because they feel marginalised and they don't want to to maybe em- sort of emphasise the negative within the community in a context of racism. So they're very complex issues here. um, that that, uh, women's groups are struggling with right now. And as I said, the paper is under consultation and we hope that um, uh, a nuanced and and a sensitive um, response by the state would happen um, and, and that might help. But ultimately, it really has to be something that comes from within the community itself. And the challenge and our research in India and Pakistan suggests some hopefulness on that ground that it is when women from within the community and men from within the community stand up and say no and are then able to have the support of people working from within the community whether they are lawyers or, or, or uh, activists more generally that is when um, change happens.